we recognise that the wine industry as a sort of passion industry, we tend to give everything to our roles. And that's one of the wonderful things about the industry. But it also can sometimes mean that people give too much of themselves. The more you get involved in a category like wine, the more you're, you need to be uh, seeking out the nuances and taking your journey a bit deeper. Oh, the sub-regions allow that to happen. Kia ora and welcome to the Wine Marlborough podcast. Whether you're curious about what makes a great wine or what's going on in the soil beneath the vines, come and explore the fascinating world of grape growing and winemaking in New Zealand's biggest wine growing region. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of River Sun Nursery. I'm your host, Sophie, editor of Wine Press Magazine. Wine Press Magazine and this podcast are produced by Wine Marlborough, an industry association working to grow, educate, protect, and celebrate the region's wine growers. And today I'm joined by Marcus Pickens, General Manager of Wine Marlborough. Kia ora, Marcus. Kia ora. Hello. How are you at the end of this vintage? Oh, good. It's not too taxing on me, but boy, it's a big push for the whole industry. It really is. It's exhausting. It's a slog in a marathon, but everyone's really, really excited, aren't they? Yeah. What are you hearing about? Oh, just I think um, such a relief and a change in um, the sort of results versus the expectations in a really positive way. Just... And it makes makes doing it so much more pleasurable when you're dealing with really good quality. Yeah, people are talking about it being excellent fruit, excellent quality yeah. and good quantities too. Yeah, best in a while. A yeah. long while. Yeah, I had one winemaker describe it to me as ha- winemakers are very happy and quite bemused because it wasn't looking like this way in um, spring and summer. That's a good summary. Yeah. Okay, great. So we're going to cover that in the latest Wine Press magazine and in the interview coming up where I chat to Simon Waghorn and Heather Stewart about the season as well as a few other things. So one of the things Simon and I will talk about is the new wine map of Marlborough, which was developed by the Appalachian Marlborough Wine Group. Have you seen much of that? I have, yeah, I've heard a lot. They've um, certainly had a big impact and um, certainly been well received, I think. It's good to see development in that space. And um, I think it's, from what I know, you know, it's version one and there'll be developments as they, um, you know, as the as the region changes. Yeah, because right. yeah, the map is um, looking at the sub-regions of Marlborough, isn't it, which is something that people are getting a little bit more excited by and understanding a bit more. But mm. Simon's been pretty excited by it for the past 15 years. And another topic that we'll be talking about today and is getting a lot of chat around Marlborough is well-being at the moment. Probably not Marlborough, of course, but everywhere um, in the wake of COVID-19. So the Marlborough Wine Industry Wellness Week is gearing up to run early May. I know Wine Marlborough has been a really big player in that. So what do you know about it? Um, I, I think um, the catalyst has been, obviously, the industry is very seasonal. It puts a lot of pressure on people at uh, various times of year. So we did some research a few years ago now just to uncover the hours that, well, that was one of the things, but the hours people were putting in to certainly the winemaking component of vintage. And it was quite sobering, actually, the the information we uncovered. So that was probably the catalyst to start, you know, really understanding it. Mm. And the Well uh, Wine Industry Wellness Week is just that first response to sort of coordinate some, some effort together mm. to bring some resources so people can especially at the end of harvest, sort of look back and think, whew, okay, that was a slog. How do we how do we improve it for next time? And, and this, there are really good tools. Wine Marlborough hasn't had to develop all the tools, but um, we're coordinating it with some really, really good people in the industry to help 
um, help us understand what they need to do mm. well. Yeah, and I love that um, industry members, whether that's wine companies or growers or some of the um, businesses that help drive the industry, they're all sharing their mm. insights and their learnings. Um, Heather talks about uh, bringing in a sleep expert to help uh-huh. their team, which I thought was really interesting because, as she says, sleep's pretty much key to to all well-being. Oh, absolutely. And just um, COVID's really changed the game, hasn't it, in mm-hmm. that that sort of um, need to address it, really, because it's been very disruptive the last few years. So we're putting our little um, foot forward and mm. um, hope to hope to make a big impact. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, well, we'll um, hear more about the Appalachian Marlborough Wine Map, the Marlborough Wine Industry Wellness Week and uh, Magic Vintage in the interview that's coming up with um, Simon and Heather. Simon Waghorn has been making wine for 40 years. Uh, he started in 1982 when he traded in his botany degree. I think he was known back then as a seaweed geek uh, for a vintage in Australia. 30 of those years, or nearly 30, have been in Marlborough since joining Whitehaven as a foundation winemaker. And then uh, he and his wife, Jane, founded Astrolab uh, the following year. Marlborough's wine industry turns 50 this year, as you well know, Marcus. So 30 years of those uh, with having Simon here as a, as makes him a, a great knowledgeable person to have in the industry. Now th- two of his three daughters uh, play lead ro- roles in the company. So it's a good topic of succession, which is a big one for all wine industries, I think. Simon's have been intrigued by the sub-regional influences of Marlborough since he arrived, and he does make wines that reflect that. Um, so in the uh, in the interview coming up, we'll talk about that and why it's so important to recognise and celebrate those differences. So our other guest uh, today, Heather, Heather Stewart, a winemaker at St. Clair Family Estate. Um, I was really interested to find out she'd done her original studies in psychology and art history, good combo, and then a Master of Science in Industrial and Organisational Psychology. So I'll be watching my P's and Q's next time I speak to Heather. She'll work me out. But after doing her first vintage, uh, she got hooked by the wine, bitten by the wine bug, and did a first vintage back at St. Clair in 2008, where she's been since. So lucky St. Clair. Heather's also chair of the company's wellbeing team called Mana Ake. And so it'd be really interesting to hear her thoughts on, you know, what happens at vintage and what they're doing to try and alleviate some of those pressures that uh, their staff have at that really, really busy time of year. So looking forward to it. Yeah, one of the things Heather mentions is that it's an industry that's um, driven by passion. The people that work in the wine industry, a little like her when she started in 2008, they love it. And that's almost part of the problem because they're willing to give so much to it. So, um, yeah, Sounds really interesting familiar. to Sounds learn very more familiar. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for coming in, Marcus. Thank you. Kia ora, Simon. Kia ora, Heather. Nice to have you here today. Thank you. So to begin, we just like to introduce you by hearing 15 words of what makes you happy as a winemaker. Heather, do you want to start? I may struggle with 15 words. I'm not known for being succinct. but just use any of them. <laughs> I love the diversity of my job. Uh, I love tasting collaborating, trialling, blending, uh, discussing, sharing knowledge. Uh, And the banter and laughs that we have as a team. And how about you, Simon? 
Or one of the happiest things is when somebody from overseas sends a wee note saying they've enjoyed the wine somewhere, you know, some restaurant. That sort of thing always gives you a buzz. Does that happen often? Do people come and... Well, well, it never happens as often as a winemaker would like, but um, it does happen and you always think, oh, what a great person that is to take the time to, you know, bother to say how much they enjoyed it, you know, because I think, would I have done that? Would I, would I, you know, research how to contact somebody? But when they do do that, you think, well, what you're doing is uh, making a difference. You're, you're making the wine the, the best you can, and there is somebody out there who's appreciating what you're doing. So it is, it's great because you're a buzz. That's pretty lovely, and I suppose as a winemaker, you probably follow that thread. So they're talking about a specific wine from a specific vintage, and for you, it's likely to have come from a specific sub-region. Yeah, and possibly, yeah. you can maybe even a vineyard, specific vineyard in some cases. So you could do you follow that through and think, ah, yes, that was a good wine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm hopeless compared to some winemakers, I think, because I struggle to, you know, recall the vintages and things. You know, they all once they're done and dusted, I'm thinking about the next one, and uh, I haven't got great recall for thinking, oh, 2014, that was a great year for Pinot or whatever. Mm. But um, I think more about the wines themselves, and generally they're not that far old. You know, they're not loitering out in the market to, to be too old unless somebody's been salaring them. So, yeah, it's, it really is just a matter of the feedback you get, realizing that you're making wine for a person, uh, and some person is bothering to to give you feedback on it. You know, I think that's just the closing a loop. I often feel that. We get so consumed in the winery and you do forget sometimes that you're making wine for people and it's so lovely to get out in the market or have yeah. those that sort of feedback. It is, yeah. And the feedback's great for winemaking too because you, it keeps you sharp. You know there's nothing worse than standing at some trade event or public event pouring a wine that you're not proud of. Mm. Uh, so it keeps you focused on being excellent at what you do um, as a you, you want to, people to be able to taste your wine and, you know, not pull a face and sort of turn around and walk away. So it's, um, it is, it's very, um, keeps winemaking honest when you're hmm. directly yeah. in front of the consumer. Well, that 15 words all wound up, didn't it? Yeah. Fortunately, we're not going to get, ask you to go too far back in the recesses of your memory, but. <laughs> Asking you about Vintage 2023, last month we had um, winemaker Jules Taylor and viticulturist Nigel Soman, and, and that was the midst of the Sauvignon harvest, and everything was looking good. But um, as you, I'm sure, know in winemaking, anything can be around the corner. Now we're at the end. I think there's still some fruit hanging out there, but how did it um, wind up? Oh, it's a really good year, really solid, strong year, as it turned out. It started off, uh, as Jules and Nigel probably mentioned, uh, with really indifferent sort of um, late summer, uh, spring sort of weather. Uh, around that period, we had a lot of indifferent days, not the sunshine we would have liked, a lot of um, humid events, uh, which led to botrytis and powdery and even downy mildew. So started off being one of the least promising seasons we've seen in, in several years. Um, but... Around about February, it seemed to switch into perfect weather. Mm -hmm. And we had, I think, as soon as the cyclone Gabriel uh, didn't come our way, we sort of got away with, I think, about an inch of rain around that period or something. 
the weather seemed to lose all that threatening humidity. It became uh, cooler at nights often. The rain was generally from the south, and which is usually not damaging for us because it's uh, not warm enough for the botrytis to kick in. So we didn't have that prolonged, uh, wet, humid weather that botrytis really loves. And uh, it meant that um, with the sort of sort of less sunny weather we'd had earlier on, the season was pushed back into a later harvest. So I guess compared to recent seasons, we were probably picking about a week, maybe to 10 days later mm. on average. So that got us into a nice autumn period, cool nights, uh, mild days, and I think we saw flavour benefits from that. How about you, Heather? Did you find it? Well, I think on a personal note, and for myself and the rest of the winemaking team, it was just wonderful to have all the overseas winemakers back. Um, just created an energy and excitement which we didn't necessarily have the last couple mm. of vintages. Um, also, not having to isolate and social distance meant we could really get amongst it more and collaborate with people, share ideas and knowledge and um, learn from those winemakers. And, yeah, just created the energy, which I really think you need during harvest because it's a demanding period. And so um, can't be all work. Mm. In the past few years have been hard, haven't they, without those international workers to bring their skills but also that energy. Yeah. So I'm Jeff Thorpe. I'm the founder and managing director of River Sun Nursery up in sunny Gisborne. We are propagators of grafted grapevines, kiwi fruit vines, avocado plants to supply the relative industries. Yeah, there's a whole lot that sits in behind that and we like to see ourselves as leaders in all of those industries. We've worked hard to try and earn that that title, I guess, by pioneering things like um, certification uh, systems, new genetics, bringing new genetics to the industry, product innovation, um, quality initiatives, and scale. Yeah, I originally started River Sun way back in 1982. I guess I was very fortunate. I discovered my passion for growing plants um, as a 17-year-old with a, with a big vegetable garden. But I started a backyard nursery in 1981 and then went full-time in 82. And so, yeah, as I say, started as a one-man band and it, it continues to build it to this day. But it, I guess it was, yeah, I was fortunate to find that passion, to find my life purpose was about a love of growing plants, you know, and hence the growing excellence. You know, it's not just growing plants. For me, it's very much about growing the, the very best plants that we can. Okay, so Simon, in each vintage, you're um, looking at Marlborough, but you're also looking at the subregions of Marlborough. I know that you've had an interest in subregions since you arrived in 1995. How different uh, are the climate, soils, and topography of the various regions, and how complex does that make your role as a winemaker? Uh, for me, we've chosen uh, our vineyards, you know, a long time ago based on. Um, we're looking for different variations in fruit profile from different soils and different sort of mesoclimates in the subregion. So I have a fixed uh, palette, if you like, of fruit that I can play with every year. It doesn't change. So I know you know over half my fruit is going to come from the Arvateri every year for Sauvignon Blanc. But um, you know I chose those areas based on the underlying characteristics 
of fruit grown in, in those regions, subregions. And uh, it makes my job a lot easier to make a house style, always based around where the hectares we take fruit from are. So it doesn't vary too much year to year because I've always stayed true to those hectares in my proportional blending. Mm-hmm. So it gives me consistency to blend in identical sort of ratios every year from those re- regions. But they do add value to the blend. Um, so when I put a Marlborough blend together, our main flagship wine, it roughly is 50, 55% Arvateri and 20% Kekaringi, maybe 10 or 20% Southern Valleys and whatever else makes up 100% from the, mm-hmm. the Wairo Plain, Spring Creek area. So um, I think we see a benefit in our house style because of those uh, added complexities in the in the uh, our terry we're looking for the herbal dried herbs and the the um, more skinsy sort of influenced wine you get from smaller berry size and thicker skins from that windy dry environment and the clay soils that a lot of it's grown on the wairo we get a, a lovely uh, more tropical ripe citrus lift kikaringu it's sort of hard to define but it sort of brings its own influences from limestone soils Southern Valleys have a, a very strong, very green gauge sort of character that comes into the fruit. So they all have those sorts of things going on. And I think because we're a small producer, we can, uh, you know, carefully blend, put those together in those ratios that we get that identifiable Astrolab style. And it's not just a matter of taking everything and throwing it into a big tank and, and seeing what comes out the end. It's, we always can trade off wine that we don't think makes our grade to some other party and mm. keep that consistency. But uh, even within that sort of generalised sort of view of Melbourne, there's pockets within the Arbiteria which are sometimes a bit more like the Waihopai Valley or in terms of the flavour profile. So it's not an easy thing to categorically uh, define and... Um, I think we, we're in sort of broad agreement what those general characteristics are in the sub-regions, but it's not hard to find exceptions to those rules. And nothing cookie-cutter about growing or making wine? Certainly not. Uh, it's one of the big things we have to avoid is people falling into a trap of thinking it's all the same here. Mm. That, and if they fly into Melbourne and they see them, the, the Wairo plane, they're thinking, oh, this fruit's just carpeting that. It's all going to be much of a muchness. But... Even on the Wairau Plain, which is probably our, our biggest single growing area, and, uh, there's different soils depending on where the old river course used to flow. Mm. There's some clays, there's some sort of very shingly hydroponic conditions. There's some nicer, deeper loams as you come down the valley. So there's, there's nothing even about what appears to be um, a fairly simple plain landscape that is universal. It's even down the rows, you see a difference in the fruit. So mm. um, it, it's important for us to let people know that Marlborough itself is very diverse and even the sub-regions are diverse within themselves. So I guess that leads us on to the Appalachian Marlborough Wine, uh, Marlborough Wine Map. Wine Map of Marlborough, sorry. And um, your part, Astrab's part of Appalachian Marlborough Wine and your part of the collective that created the map. So can you just tell us a little bit about Appalachian Marlborough wine and then why this map that shows the subregions of Marlborough 
according to the, the collective, um, why, what kind of a tool it provides for people like you that want to go to the market with wines and say, you know, this is a sub-regional. Yeah, sure. I mean, Appalachian Marlborough Wine is really a, an effort by um, you know, concerned wine companies within Marlborough to help consolidate all the gains we've made so far and, and introduce some quality parameters about um, you know how the wine should be made and where it should be bottled and trying to bring Marlborough into that same sort of um, tradition that a lot of the European classic areas have had over many decades now. So in, in places like France, we have the Appalachian system and California has their own sort of um, version of that. We want to make sure that people understand that there's producers in Marlborough who care about things like uh, crop loads per hectare, um, quality standards of the wine that's going to the bottle. The best way of doing that, as we felt, is to get involved in a voluntary organisation that, with people with similar viewpoints, set a reasonably broad and welcoming set of criteria around that and invite other people to join for the ride and hope that the uh, down the track, after many years, we'll start to see some traction in the marketplace where people will see a wine with the, the Appalachian Marlboro wine logo on and say, well, this is a wine that's been made by people who care deeply about what they're doing and they are trying to um, cherish what's good about Marlboro and get that into the bottle. And then the wine map with its sub-regions is about uh, adding to that premiumization story, isn't it, so that you can start uh, looking at um, Marlboro's in bespoke ways. I think so. I think uh, any consumer really you know, likes the w- wine of the world, and including the wines from Melbourne, they generally like the stories. If you want to pay a premium on a bottle of wine, if you somebody will pay that extra bit that gets you into the premium wine sector, you need a story to accompany that. Uh, you need to know something either about the people that are behind the wine or certainly, um, you know, about the individual vineyard sites and sub-regions. So it's a lot easier, I think, to uh, take people along for that premiumized ride if there's more to the story that's clearly expressed. And that helps us show those sub-regions. We've been talking about them almost forever here in Marlborough. And uh, but getting them onto a piece of paper, a visual or digital uh, representation of it, and being able to support those stories with a clear illustrative guide makes it a lot more tangible for the wine enthusiast on the other side of the world who hasn't been to Melbourne. I'm interested to know, you talk about the wine enthusiast abroad, but uh, is it the buyers and the, um, the wine reviewers that um, uh, understand the sub-regionality or do you find that it's, it is something that's understood by consumers? And Heather, I'm interested to know whether you know, St. Clair is finding that same experience with Simon. Uh, I would say that it depends on the, the market. In the UK, which is our oldest market, I guess, from Alpha Sauvignon, there's a huge amount of knowledge in the trade about these sub-regions already. So you don't have to spend much time talking about Arbiteri wine to... Uh, maybe somebody like Oz Clark, mm. you know, one of the more um, strong personalities in the media world. And uh, 
even the sommeliers and people in the retail area, a lot of them already know that story. Mm. Newer markets and um, you know markets like the US, less of that is sort of entrenched. So you really, the people who understand that best are really quite already quite far down the track. You know, they're at the pointy end of the wine trade. They're the sommeliers or wine writers and so forth. So the general public wouldn't have that familiarity with some of those concepts. So it is important to be able to take those maps into those newer areas and, and feed that story. We still don't want to lose track that the Marlboro's a, a blend is the most important thing. I mean, Marlboro's a pretty powerful word in the wine world. Isn't it's it? probably one of the very um, few uh, wines of the world of Marlboro and Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc where the region and the variety are so closely associated uh, particularly in the wines of the New World. There's maybe Chenin Blanc in South Africa is a bit like that, Malbec in Argentina. But I think if you say to somebody in, in the US, uh, Marlborough, they'll think Sauvignon Blanc. And, mm. and uh, even better, if you say Sauvignon Blanc to them, they'll probably think Marlborough. And that's pretty powerful. But uh, as people get more and more into a category, I mean, it's like if you're a car enthusiast, you most cars are pretty good at getting you from A to B, but if you really love cars, then you want to spend a wee bit more to get, I don't know, the, a, a BMW or something like that or whatever. So the more you get involved in a category like wine, the more you you need to be uh, seeking out the nuances and taking your journey a bit deeper. Mm. And uh, the sub-regions allow that to happen. If you love Melbourne as a category... Then you might want to fill around with trying, you know, what's different about the Arbiteri and the Wairo. Mm. And uh, that's where you can encourage customers along on a, a more premium journey. Yeah, I think increasingly, I mean, to a small extent still, but uh, particularly I've noticed like the Southern Valleys, Pinot Noir, for example, is um, starting to be more well known, particularly amongst the sommeliers, etc. Um, and at St. Clair, we have our Pioneer Block range, which is single vineyard wine, so that's often a nice opportunity for us to demonstrate the sub-regional differences and really talk to, talk to them and explain them. And uh, that's been really well received uh, by consumers and uh, distributors. Mm. Right. And um, we don't hear much about Kikiringu as a sub-region, but I know you're pretty passionate about it, So we really are the, dominating that category we've got. Uh, two vineyards down there, and um, I guess I think I got my first fruit from down there about 2007 or six. Um, so it's been quite a lot of interesting history for us. We we love the coastal proximity of the vineyards down there, the limestone soils, which you don't really encounter in wine growing in Melbourne until you get down to sort of Ward and further south. So. That adds something to it. The uh, seasons are a little different down there, and we get early spring um, bud burst down there, and we have a often a later harvest due to the sea breezes and sometimes the the southerlies that that area is more exposed to, slowing down the ripeness. So we, we have fruit which has grown on a different soil, has a longer hang time on the vine, and has its own special character. So it uh, informs our wines a lot by just adding a uh, kind of a top note that's different from the other wines in Melbourne. Um, 
particularly in the Pinot Noir, we get a beautiful fragrant floral uh, elements to the Pinot, mm. which helps break down some of the more muscular uh, structure that we get in the Southern Valleys. The Sauvignon, I think, is we always aim for a briny, sort of salty style down there with our Kikaringa wine, which appeals to people who sometimes are, are more familiar with European Sauvignon styles and the classic Marlborough, so it gives us an opportunity to produce a, a wine for another palate. Mm. And uh, yeah, we have a small but um, you know devoted following to that wine around the world. And it's for us, it's one of the interesting wines that we have in Europe where we start to see little operators, little uh, distributors and little restaurant groups and things looking for those differences. And Kekaringu for us is brilliant because we have it almost exclusively ourselves. <laughs> Your own little sub-region. Um, so um, now I know that Astrolab's got an exciting project coming up with the Urban Winery in um, partnership with Rangatane in Blenheim. Um, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we've um, we've been thinking for a long time. As you know, we're going through um, kind of we're in the middle of uh, intergenerational sort of change. I'm not going anywhere for a while, but my daughters are certainly two of my three daughters have come into the business uh, over the last ten years and or so, and, and really are starting to drive the direction of the business. Uh, and one of the things we worked out as a family is that we we want to be able to tell our story directly to the consumer. We want a, a home for a cellar door. Um, and we thought and Blenheim is going to be a, the perfect place for that. Blenheim is a, obviously the heart of the Marlborough wine growing area, but it doesn't have a lot of visible signs of the industry all around it until you sort of get out to the uh, Riverlands or somewhere like that where you see the wineries. We felt that bringing winemaking into the heart of Blenheim was a good idea. We also, um, and, and we want our office and our cellar door to be with that, but for me the um, one of the important things for us with the winery development is that we I can use it as a teaching winery and um, help pass on the knowledge of what I've learned uh, to my daughters and uh, they can learn winemaking by doing rather than studying. And um, it's also going to be where we take all our little artisanal uh, hand-picked wines, all our fruit that comes in in little bins and gets pressed as whole bunches in our Pinot Noir, anything that lives in a barrel throughout its maturation. That'll be focused onto that little winery, and so it will give us um, quite a nice story and quite a nice uh, thing to show visitors to the winery, to our cellar door, what goes on and what makes uh, some of the more uh, almost spiritual elements of winemaking there. We um, will have most of our wine still being made at, by our very good friends at New Zealand Wineries in uh, Riverlands. Yes. That's still going to be our engine room, but it'll be a nice, uh, nice to sort of separate off those little boutique elements and showcase them. I uh, recall your wife Jane telling me about um, when you started at Whitehaven that your um, daughters would uh, scamper around the winery and plunge Pinot in their togs, which I loved. So I guess um, now, all these years on, um, Arabella. Um, will be there making wine and that's right. Yeah. yeah, so we used to they used to refer to themselves as cellar mice back in the day. And 
and uh, and Whitehaven is, was where you know, the the old um, I guess it was Coca and Mills ice cream I think originally, but the 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 Malt House, Dodson's and um, Dietmar is there now with his pizzas and the brewery. And it, it's a site that's seen a few changes through it, but when we were there, it was great for the kids because they could spill out into Lansdowne Park and roam around and they'd uh, crawl around the tops of the tanks, probably not altogether OSH certified these days. But it is fun to me to think that Arabella will be back in that environment and uh, also Libby with her three children. They'll be the, the new, next generation of these cellar, cellar mice and... Uh, Hopefully, one of them might capture their imagination. We might see Generation 3 thinking yeah. about Hawaiian as a career. Well, succession is such a big thing in Marlborough at the moment, although I'm pretty sure they won't be able to plunge Pino in their togs anymore, sadly. I don't know. Nobody, nobody sees it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's um, succession is brilliant now. I think Marlborough's got to a stage in its history where, um, you know, the young of uh, you know the the children of, of pioneering winemaking families here are able to stay working in Melbourne and get involved in the family businesses and I think that's going to be one of the good stories to be passing on to the the people around the world that there is a winemaking tradition evolving in Melbourne. And Heather, you'll find that at St. Clair too, where Neil and Judy Ebbotson were some of the first growers in Marlborough. So family businesses are certainly thriving here. You've already talked a bit about your vintage and um, the place of sub-regionality. And what I'm really keen to talk to you about is well-being and wine, which is a big conversation at the moment. Um, in early May, Marlborough has its first um, Marlborough Wine Industry Wellbeing Week. Um, you actually have a degree in psychology before you became a winemaker. I'm interested in how you became a winemaker, but um, can you tell us a little bit about well, how that did happen and how your past experiences help you um, navigate this well-being area? Yeah, I didn't grow up in a wine region and it wasn't uh, really on my radar um, and it wasn't intentional. I actually um, I had dinner with a friend um, just before I was about to go overseas and uh, she I'd studied with her for my master's um, another psychologist who had um, inadvertently found the wine industry <laughs> it's Natalie Christensen and uh, she said you should come and do a harvest and I thought oh that sounds exciting and so I had a six-week contract and came um, working in the cellar and I just loved it I loved the um, the passion and the dynamism and the people, such an eclectic mix of people in the wine industry. There's science geeks and it's, it's, there's manual labour and you know, people are passionate about food and wine and travel. It's just wonderful. And, yeah, I think one day I thought, I haven't been in a bad mood for months. Like, <laughs> is this happiness? I must be happy here. And I was quite lucky the wine industry was growing quite rapidly then and uh, so there was room for me to um, really grow in the industry. And I had some wonderful mentors, uh, likes of Hamish Clark and Matt Thompson, who invited me with opportunities, but also openly shared their knowledge. Uh, so, uh, fifteen years later, my um, six-week contracts been extended out. <laughs> um, so now, as well as being a busy winemaker, and it is a very busy role, isn't it? You're also chair of St. Clair's um, Mana Aki team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we established it quite a few years ago, but it's continued to evolve. And basically, we're just uh, looking at or ensuring the well-being of our staff. Um, we recognise that the wine industry, um, as a sort of passion industry, uh, we tend to give everything to uh, to our roles, um, and that's one of the wonderful things about the industry. But um, you know, constant professional development and uh, wine tastings in the evening. We live and breathe it, and which is uh, amazing. But it also can sometimes mean that people give too much of themselves. Uh, so we want to, and, and it's a, a demanding industry. You know, there's very high pressure periods of time, for, which are obviously harvest is the big one, uh, where people are working long hours and doing night shift and. Uh, things, but there's other times of the year, you know, overseas marketing, etc., which put a lot of demands on people, uh, including in the sort of administration side and sales and marketing, they have really high pressure time. So it was really important to us at St. Clair to really invest in people's wellness and well-being and just make sure that we were, um, yeah, having positive outcomes for people. And some of the ways uh, that you've been doing this, so you spoke the other day um, about getting a sleep expert in, which I thought was intriguing. Yeah, so when I sort of came on board, I, because I have a IO site background, I sort of thought it was quite important to do a needs analysis to make sure that we were uh, figuring out what wellness is for all the individuals in the company. So, you know, for some people, they need that social aspect and, you know, partying's great for their well-being, but for other people... Uh, that just causes anxiety and they don't really enjoy that. So uh, we looked at uh, what well-being is for all the individuals. Um, there's sort of six main dimensions of well-being in the literature. Um, it also, um, the the Māori sort of um, well-being model is also based on sort of six main dimensions and that's sort of social, mental, emotional, environmental spiritual, physical well-being, and we're using all of those different, um, focusing on all those different aspects and incorporating that into the whole business and everything we do and making sure we're always factoring our staff's well-being into, um, into everything from sort of the organisational side of it and shift work, but uh, how we have celebrations and um, acknowledge, acknowledging achievements and things. Mm. And the sleep expert was part of that. Yes, so uh, sleep was something that we identified in a survey that we did. Uh, is something that a lot of people were struggling with. Um, I mean, obviously worldwide people are struggling with sleep and we know that sleep is so critical for physical and emotional well-being. So uh, we had Dr. David Edgar uh, come in and speak to us and he's uh, he works a lot with the New Zealand Defence Force and also professional sports teams, particularly professional rugby. So we're really fortunate to have him come in and speak to all of our team, including our harvest staff, um, just about the importance of sleep and managing sleep, good sleep hygiene, um, how to navigate shift work, uh, transitioning in and out of night shift. So it's quite tailored to the wine industry and the pressures that we're under. Mm. Do you think um, you know, during COVID, it was a lot of pressure on winemakers and supervisors. There was a, um, an experienced labour pool. As you've mentioned, the borders were closed, so we didn't have that 
um, international seller hands coming in. Did that um, put increase the focus, do you think, on well-being in the wine industry? It's always been a pressured industry, but the conversation seems to be very strong around it right yeah, now. Yeah, I think worldwide, not just in the wine industry, there's been an awareness of it. We've seen a lot of deterioration of mental health and uh, worldwide, and so there has been a focus. Uh, and I think uh, as an industry, we really need to ensure that um, ensure sustainability for our workforce so we're really good at sustainability for um, the land and environment I mean it's a work in progress but we have a lot of focus on that but another really essential asset that we have in the New Zealand wine industry is our people and that's something that we have to make sure we're um, is sustainable as well. Yeah do you have an ideal situation I mean what how far does the wine industry have to go to be in that sustainable position. I mean, I imagine that's work in progress too, but... Yeah, I think we're doing well. Um, I mean, when I started, we're, it was 13-hour days, seven days a week, and um, most wine companies now give staff at least a day off or a couple of days off a week over harvest. Um, we're looking at reduced hours. Uh, there's a lot. We're doing a lot, and it's um, really positive. Um of course, we can always do better, and I think uh, there is, as I think Kat mentioned in your last podcast, there's a bit of a culture in the wine industry that um, you need to, you know, you come out of harvest and uh, exhausted and run down and, you know, is is that okay? Um, and so I think this Wellness Week is a really wonderful opportunity to um, open that conversation and create awareness and uh, I know there's going to be a lot of uh, companies putting on social media how they sort of facilitate well-being and wellness within their organisations and um, and it's wonderful to celebrate that what people are doing well like Jules Taylor who you had on the last podcast who's um, doing four-day weeks it's wonderful uh, but um, and it's going to give companies and individuals ideas of ways mm-hmm. they can really incorporate incorporate wellness into their lives and both as individuals and companies and as an industry uh no i agree uh, with you know it is a high pressure environment i think any harvest environment is like that but you only get one shot at it so everybody's generally excited and amped up for it but um the hours can be long and they're in a difficult season there's all sorts of anxieties and stresses that come in um for everybody right from the grower through to the the winemaker. Uh, so we do have to be careful. I think, um, you know, I grew up in a time when it was all, you know, 12 hour shifts and uh, we've gone, come a long way down to thinking more about how to get the best out of our people. Um, but I think there's still a lot of kind of interesting work to be done around the specific pressures that even at the top end of it, the winemakers themselves. You've got the demands of trying to get it right. You've got expectations of the the whole business you're working for around the outcomes of what you're doing. Maybe that brings us full circle to the nice consumer overseas sending you a letter to tell you how good your wine is. Yeah, that certainly helps. <laughs> that, uh, that makes a big difference. Uh, any positive feedback is great, and I suppose within the organisations we have to be aware that uh, people are, are working away often without that positive feedback loop. Uh, we have to take time out to congratulate people on jobs well done. Oh, well, congratulations to both of you on jobs well done. 
<laughs> now, uh, just to finalise, um, I would like some inspiration for the weekend. So can you give me your um, ideal food and wine match or just one that maybe think, makes you think of sub-regional wines? Well, I like to drink seasonally and eat seasonally. And at the moment I'm loving all the figs that are around at all the roadside stalls. And so I've spent a few evenings lately um, with <laughs> uh, a glass of really lovely Chardonnay and uh, figs, and I make a cashew cheese because I'm, I eat plant-based. So, um, yeah, and I think wine for me is also very situational, and so ideally I'd be having all of that in the bath. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, something that messy with all that in there, but I, 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 I'm not the huge, um, you know, this wine has to go with that food sort of person. I think um, most wine goes with most food, and but some things are magical. And one of the things that um, always resonated with me was how nicely, uh, you know, an off-dry Gewurztraminer goes with a, a mild blue cheese and a bit of maybe quince paste or gingerbread or something like that. So sometimes you get those little things that really stick in your brain. But uh, for me, that's one of the surprising finds of recent years. I don't make a converse anymore, but and it's often a hard wine to match, but there is that little opportunity to, to get a real buzz out of things that seem to sit brilliantly together. And quince is a seasonal right now too, so perfect. It certainly is. There's about a ton of it under our tree at home. <laughs> Lovely. Thanks so much for coming in. No, thank you for having Thanks, us. Simon. That was Heather Stewart and Simon Waghorn, and a big thanks to them for coming in. The Marlborough wine industry uh, will now be focused on blending and bottling, and there'll be plenty of people travelling to meet consumers and buyers abroad. They'll also be thinking about Vintage 2024, which begins with pruning the vineyard, so it'll be a really busy winter. Thanks to River Sun Nursery for supporting this podcast. Join us again next month for more stories about Marlborough wine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>